Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. We are starting a brand new journey through a book in the Bible. That's kind of what we do around here. We preach through books in the Bible. Uh, I became the senior pastor suddenly in 2012, and knowing enough to know what I didn't know, I decided I'm just going to preach the Bible because I can't, I'm 29 years old, I can't rely on my infinite wisdom and, you know, stuff of life. I haven't lived long enough. So I was like, I'm just going to lean on the Bible. And that's basically been what we've been doing for the better part of a decade. And God has really blessed it. We preached through Luke. That was the first one I did. And we did Acts. We did Joshua. We did Genesis. We did Mark. Uh, Recently, we did Revelations. I was testing you. I was testing you. Revelation. And today we're starting into the gospel of Matthew. Now, for those of you who might be new to Christianity, new to the Bible in general, there are four gospels. And the word gospel basically means good news. It's an announcement about something. And all four of these gospels are the good news story about the person of Jesus. If you open your Bible and someone told you, hey, start in the New Testament, and you found Matthew and you read through Matthew, and then you turn the page over to the book of Mark, and you started to read it, you're like, hey, this sounds like the same story. It's because it is. It's the same story told by four different people from four different perspectives. And it kind of gives us a real 3D imagery of who Jesus is, what he did, and why he came, and all that. And today we start the book of Matthew. Now, historically, Christian history pretty much unanimously holds that the book of Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew, the tax collector. We'll find him, his introduction here shortly. But it was written by a tax collector who followed Jesus. His life changed, and he gives us this firsthand eyewitness account of the most explosive, mind-blowing, life-changing, incredible story of Jesus you could ever imagine. A story of a Savior who came, was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, who taught with authority that no one has seen before or since, who changed lives, who touched lepers and healed them, who cast out demons and broke chains, who raised the dead, who opened blind eyes, who walked on water, who fed thousands with just a happy meal, like just crazy stuff, the most explosive story you can imagine. And we are starting in that today. And here is how it starts. Are you ready? Is the suspense ready? Like, this is going to be awesome. Like, you're you're expecting Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible 2. Here's how he starts. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Like, oh, man, I skipped this stuff. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of frustrated men who stand on the side of the river and don't catch anything. Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jaconia and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihu, Abihu the father of Eliakim. Eliakim is the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Nathan, Nathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who, called, who was called the Messiah. Thus, <laughs> there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Amen. Now you're like, hey man, you kind of sold us a bill of goods. We thought this was going to be this explosive, powerful story, and here is this long list of names, like boring you know, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe it's one of those stories that you got to give it a couple chapters, like, you know, on Netflix, you don't really write off a show until you give it a couple seasons, right? Like, oh, it's like, you got to give it three or four seasons before it really picks up. Like, whoa, what is wrong with us that you got to watch 40 hours of a show before it really picks up? Anyway, that's another, another message for another day. But this was not the explosive start, maybe, that some of you were expecting. Why? In such an incredible story where there's miracles and cross, like the cross and the resurrection and incredible drama and just incredible stuff that happens. Why does Matthew start with a genealogy? Why does he start with the story of Jesus' family tree? Now, some of you, you might be like me, where you really don't give your family tree beyond your parents, grandparents, and maybe great-grandparents a whole lot of thought. Does anybody, any, any like Ancestry.com nerds? Well, I went on the deep dive this week, y'all. I, I, I got into this sermon and started digging through the genealogy of Jesus, and I realized I don't even know who I am. And so beyond my great-grandparents, I really was kind of lost. So we registered for Ancestry.com, and we started tracing my Ingersoll channel back as far as we could go. And so I started learning stuff about my ancestry. I go back to my great-great-grandfather, Adrian Ingersoll, business owner of a fishing company and also owner of a killer handlebar mustache. <laughs> Babe, can I grow that? Can we? No? Okay, never mind. <laughs> I feel like you can see the resemblance a little bit. But Adrian, then, his father before him, we traced it all the way back to my ancestors who came from England, uh, they crossed from England back in like the 16, early 1600s. The, a guy named George was the first official like American. I guess he wasn't American at the time, but we lived through the American Revolution. And uh, apparently I have loyalists in my history. We also have like American militia and so all kinds of crazy stuff. And we learned like this guy George and his father Richard, I guess my great, 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 great grandfather, came across on the Mayflower and settled in Salem, Massachusetts. And we started uncovering the complicated skeletons in my closet, man. Like, we've got Salem witch hunts. I have Puritans and witches in my background. Like, <laughs> crazy, right? Like, we have, we have loyalists and rebels. We have all kinds of, we, we found all kinds of crazy stuff. Apparently, this guy Nathaniel Ingersoll, like, owned a tavern in Salem where a lot of the witch trials happened, kind of craziness there. And then we started migrating north into Maine and then came into Charlotte County where, my, where all the good people are from. And we, uh, we moved to Grand Manan and then to Whitehead and we've been around Charlotte County and southern New Brunswick pretty much ever since. 
Well, what I found out in exploring Ancestry.com and exploring my family tree is, man, there's some, there's some skeletons in the Ingersoll closet and there's some weirdness in the bloodline. Not going to lie. And I bet you if we could sit down and do yours, yours would be every bit as interesting, wouldn't it now? And some of you are like, hey, you don't even have to go back four generations, son. You, you talk to my cousin and talk about, anyway, don't look at your neighbor if, right now if you came with them. But I found this out, like there's, there's just, there's messiness and brokenness. There were poor people and rich people. There were uneducated people and highly educated people. There were people of humble beginnings and there were magistrates and actually I'm connected to the king in Scotland who was the antagonist in Braveheart. I always wanted to be part of Braveheart, just not on that team. But anyway, that is who I am. I'm from that. We had Puritans and we had witches. We had all kinds of just humanity in my history. And I I struggled with it a little bit because I, I can't really, whether I like it or not, and even though I've been blissfully unaware of a lot of this up until this week, that's who I am. I am from that tree. I actually come from that line. That is in me. And you might be a person like me, like up until this week, like I don't really think about it a lot. That didn't happen to me, so it's not really relevant. I, I, I defy you and actually would say, no, you might be the only person who doesn't think that's relevant. You know who thinks your history is relevant? Your doctor. Your doctor would tell you it's relevant. They'd say, hey, does your father have heart disease? Does heart disease run in your family? Does cancer run in your family? We ask those things. Insurance companies know that your ancestry really matters. They, they, they know that it matters. Marketing agencies know that your heritage and your ancestry and your genealogy matters. They spend billions of dollars on nostalgia marketing, trying to tie you into things that you think you, you, you resonate with, things in your history that you can trust. Counselors know that your history matters. If you ever dive deep into counseling, marriage counseling or personal counseling, you'll get into your family of origin. You'll start untangling the complexity of your family tree. Why? Because like it or not, you're on that sucker. You come from that. That is who you are. Your therapist knows it, that you carry. How many of you know you can actually carry generational trauma with you? Stuff that didn't even actually explicitly happen to you. I remember talking to Bradford about this. When he first got here, all the George Floyd stuff started blowing up. And I could see in his eyes the pain. And although I looked at that with like, a, like why? And this is so wrong and so weird to see unfold. There was a visceral pain that he was experiencing because he's an American. He goes back to that. His roots run deep in that. You can actually carry generational trauma with you. You are on that tree. You are part of that. That is your story, whether you like it or not. Our genealogy, our family tree, is our story. It is the story we are in, and it's the story that's in us. You are part of your history. Now, the ancients also believed that you are part of your history, but for them it wasn't so much like medical history or even like social history or trauma, for them, your family tree had everything to do with your pedigree. It was like your resume. If you lived in the first century, how people knew your identity and how they knew who you are, who you are and ultimately who you're going to be had everything to do with who and where you came from. So 
Matthew understood, and the reason he started with this is this, is this simple fact. A person's identity and destiny is inextricably linked to their history. And so he starts the book of Matthew with this genealogy because this is reality, not just for the reader, but for Jesus. If we're going to get an understanding on who this Jesus is and what he came to do, you can't understand it apart from this genealogy. And so he starts into the genealogy to give us an understanding of why he came. But this reality that you and I are part of this, that you're part of your story, you might not think about it, but everybody is basically living from their family tree. It's, it's the story they're in, and it's the story that's in them. A lot of us try to escape or erase it. Maybe we try to edit it. That's very popular these days. We cancel things in our history we don't like. We tear down statues and pretend like that didn't happen. But like it or not, that's in our history. Canceling something's not going to actually make it go away. Many of us try to edit or enhance it. We try to maybe embellish it, make it sound better than it actually was. We try to put it in a favorable light, the revisionist history approach. Some of us, we try to embody it, to live up to it, to earn it or to redeem it ourselves. But whatever the case is, you right now are very much living from and in the story of your family tree. And here's why Matthew kind of starts with this. This is why I wanted to spend a whole week preaching from the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew sets up his gospel in this good news story to try to show us that Jesus came to do what all of us cannot. He came to actually perfect our stories. He didn't come to pretend like your history didn't happen. He didn't come to cover up the skeletons in your closet or to pretend like you don't have trauma. He didn't come to kind of call you to be something you're not present, presently are. He came to actually deal with the brokenness of the human condition. The gospel of Jesus is about a God who isn't so interested in meeting you where you should be. He's interested in meeting you as you are, meeting you where you are. And this is why Matthew starts with the genealogy. I want to just really quickly, because I'm melting, I'm going to just try to give you like three things that you need to see in this genealogy. It tells a story. And it gets us looking in the right direction for the rest of the gospel of Matthew. But there are three things that this genealogy in all of its glory tells us that we need to see. And the first is the most, is the most striking. It says and it tells us this. I'm going to skip that. I got my slides all messed up. But here's the first thing. There is a story in this family tree, and the story is the story of a God who came to fix what and who is broken. He came to fix what and who is broken. Jesus actually came to heal our broken human and historic identity. Now, if you and I could spend the next hour and we could really unpack the genealogy of Jesus... And we could look through like the biblical history and start to line up all these names. You would start to notice something. That the genealogy that Matthew provides isn't actually comprehensive. It's selective. There's, there's people missing. There's, there's parts missing. He, he's only highlighting certain parts of the lineage and genealogy of Jesus. And now, this was common practice in the first century. Because in the first century, like I just got done telling you, your genealogy is in effect your resume. 
And so if someone is going to put their trust in you or they're going to respect you or believe in you, it's because you have a really impressive genealogy, a really impressive heritage. And so that's why like rulers like Caesar, Caesar Augustus, by the time he was, he was in power, they were calling him not just the son of his actual father, they were calling him the son of God. Why? Because that gave him the most supreme pedigree. He's like, oh, this guy actually came from God. That's how powerful and awesome he is. Put your trust in him. This is why at the time of Jesus, Herod, you know Herod in the Bible? You're going to meet him later. Herod was very into real-time editing his genealogy, keeping his resume looking nice and neat. How many of you know we still enhance our resumes? I remember looking at my cousin's resume. He had sandwich artist on it. And I was like, dude, you worked at Subway. You were just subway. <laughs> hey, man, that's what you do, right? You angle your resume. And so in the time of Jesus, Herod quite literally was editing his resume, erasing people that was part of his lineage that weren't impressive, highlighting the ones that were, and actually he murdered family members to keep his line pure. That's how important this was. So this idea of having a selective resume and a selective genealogy would not have been weird to the first century. What would have been weird, however, is the fact that in Jesus' genealogy and in the genealogy that Matthew provides us, it's the complete opposite of what all these kings and rulers and impressive people of his day, the people with pedigree, would have done. They would have highlighted the things that were noteworthy and praiseworthy, but Matthew, when you start to read it, seems to go out of his way to show the skeletons in Jesus' closet. It's almost like he goes out of his way to show the brokenness that Jesus comes from. That this tree that he is a part of, that he came through, is a very busted, broken human tree. You get the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If you know their stories, they were not perfect people, y'all. And then you get into like some real weirdness. It starts to highlight a bunch of women, which you never would do. To put a woman in a genealogy was like scandalous and weird, and it would have caused everybody like, why is that there? And then the moment you look closer, you would realize there are five women in his genealogy, four of whom were ethnic outsiders. They weren't even Jews, and most of whom had some broken, terrible, traumatic sexual history that was absolutely scandalous, like Tamar. Do you know the story of Tamar? Tamar was married to an absolute horrid man. The Bible says in Genesis that God actually got rid of him. And then Tamar had no descendants and she was so desperate, she got her father-in-law drunk and conceived a child through incest. And that child was Perez. So there's incest in this family tree. There's murder in this family tree. There are liars and cheaters in this family tree. And the list goes on and on. You, you have the story of David was the father of Solomon. We know David's story. And then it's almost like it highlights the bad, traumatic memory of David's story. Like he could have said anything about David, the one who conquered Goliath. The one who, you know, wrote all those psalms, the awesome king of Israel. And yet, the one thing that he decides to note about David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Do you know the story? What did David do with Uriah's wife? He got her pregnant while Uriah was fighting his war. And then to cover it up, he has Uriah killed. So there is murder, treachery, and adultery deep in Jesus' family tree. What is the point 
that Matthew is trying to show us. There are these scandals in Jesus' family tree. There's murder and incest and rape and sexual abuse. There's the prostitute Rahab is in there. There are bastard children and liars and traitors and cowards and moral outcasts and ethnic outcasts. The whole gamut. I mean, talk about skeletons in the closet. Talk about inconsistencies in the bloodline, it doesn't get any more gnarly and human than that list of people. Why does Matthew provide this selective genealogy? Well, here's why. He is screaming through this list the good news about Jesus, that Jesus is a savior who came through brokenness to bring healing to broken people. There's a story in the tree, this story of redemption where God did not call us to dig ourselves out of the pit, but he himself put on human frailty and flesh and was born right into family dysfunction, y'all. You think you come from a messed up family? Invite Jesus in there and watch what happens. He comes right into the mess of humanity. We see a Messiah here, according to Matthew, who doesn't ignore or edit human labels. He doesn't even care about human labels of legitimacy or illegitimacy. This is a savior who came to bring salvation to all. The genealogy is a statement of a God who came to bring life to the skeletons in your closet. Oh, come on. A God who came to bring pure blood to your impure bloodline. This is the story. Isn't it, isn't it incredible? Like, like just... Just let it confront, let it confront. Let this genealogy confront religiosity for a minute. It's incredible to me how fast I can lose sight of that message and start to think that being a Christian is about being a good man and trying to keep all my morals right and keep the skeletons out of my closet and keep my bloodline pure, that kind of thing. It's all about your, how you act and live and act. No, the gospel is actually about a God who came to deal with human brokenness, ultimately at its root. That's what the gospel is. Like, I remember I was having a conversation with a guy. I invited him to come to Easter. This was a few years ago before the pandemic. And I was telling him about Jesus. And I said, hey, actually, I'm going to explain more. Like, tomorrow we're doing services at the church. And I'm telling the gospel, why don't you come? And he said this. I was selling him a lawnmower. All good conversations happen with lawnmowers around. And he said, uh, he said if I came to your church, the walls would fall in. Right? Some of you actually said those things. And you're surprised they're still standing. Some of you know people have said that. How on earth did we start telling the wrong story? The gospel is actually for people that think the walls would cave in. Jesus came for broken people. He calls them to him. Like here's how you can know if you've got the gospel in your heart. When you get honest about your sin, and how many of you know we're really good at kind of keeping the skeletons in the closet, not just our family skeletons, but our own skeletons, our own dysfunction and inadequacies? We're pretty good at pretending like they don't exist until they force themselves upon us. But when you get really honest about your sinfulness and brokenness, what do you do with it? Do you envision a God who's going to smite you and you've got to hide and appease and you've got to project a certain image to him? Or do you realize that this God is a God who came specifically to deal with the skeletons in your closet? So if what you do with sin is run from God, you don't understand who this God is. See the story in the tree. He came for your sin. If you turn to him, when you say, hey, I've got this dysfunction in me, and you turn toward him, 
That means you actually understand that God is a God who wants to deal with human brokenness. He is not surprised by you. He knows every skeleton in your closet, ones that go way deeper than Ancestry.com could ever go. And yet he wants you to come to him to deal with your brokenness. And this is the story that Matthew is trying to tell us. God is a God who came in flesh through Jesus Christ, born through human brokenness, born from a broken bloodline, skeletons in the closet, and he came to bring healing to all people, all people, all people, all people. Like these types of people. Like these types of people. Like this type of person. Like those people. I love John 3.16. One of my favorite words in the English language in that context is God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever. Whosoever? You soever? Me soever? They soever? All whoever. Whoever comes to him can have life. This is why Jesus came. And why do you think Matthew is so fixated on this. Are you still with me? I'm sweating and hot, so I don't know if like you're... Why do you think Matthew is so fixated on this? Because you had to know his story. He, he's not an island to himself. This Jesus met him on his tree. Matthew, we know, was a tax collector. Do you know who the most hated person in Jesus' culture was? A tax collector. Everybody hated the tax collector. The tax collector was the one person we can all agree on. We do not like the world would be better if you weren't part of it. <laughs> Flat out. Like, these guys were cheats. They were, they were traitors. They, tra they were Jews who were serving the Roman Empire, and they were capitalizing off their treachery, extorting the Jewish people. They actually got to take a cut of the taxes themselves. So they were rich, powerful, and hated absolutely hated. They were outcasts. The Romans didn't respect them and the Jews hated them. And this is the picture you have. And we find Matthew is this tax collector and he actually records this, the day that Jesus called him. It says, it says in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus tells his, or Matthew tells his story when Jesus came. And Jesus, Jesus comes along one day, it says, and he saw a man named Matthew. And Matthew's like, that's me, everybody. And Matthew is sitting, this is a testimony, sitting at the tax collector's booth. I love that he's actually in his mess right there. It wasn't like Matthew had a realization that day that being a tax collector wasn't good. And as he was starting to get his act together, Jesus came along. That's not the story, is it? What's it say? Just read it. As he was sitting at the tax collector's booth, sitting there ripping people off, being a jerk. And Jesus said what? Stop being a jerk, Matthew. End quote. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, follow me. No questions asked. Just come as you are right now. Like, you can follow me. Follow me. And then it says this. And he told him, Matthew got up and followed him. I shared something on Facebook, on our Facebook last night. I'd love you to go see it. It's the scene from The Chosen where Jesus calls Matthew. We can't show it because Facebook will shut this feed off. But Go check it out sometime. But it's this incredible moment where Jesus calls this person that everybody else would have written off. I love that. I don't know who's here today that needs to be reminded. Like, you're, you think you're written off. And maybe everybody else has written you off. But you know who hasn't? Jesus. You are not a lost cause. And the skeletons in your closet are not too much for him to handle. And Matthew says, that's my testimony. 
It tells us that they actually go on from there and they're having dinner at Matthew's house. I love it. Jesus just goes right into the den of the lions, right? Let's, let's eat in your house that you bought with extorted money. Let's do that. He says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Like, I wish we could jump in and have more time to deal with the scandal of that statement. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So go, Pharisees, and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I didn't come here for you and your religious rituals and your moral superiority. I came to show mercy to people who need mercy and bring healing to broken people. That's why he came. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. This is the story in the tree. Uh, Scottish pastor and theologian Alistair Begg. He could be my cousin. I don't know. It says if Jesus has these individuals as his forebearers, we would not be surprised that he would include these types of people as his followers. Are you one of these types of people? If Jesus has those people as his forebearers,